We resume our study on the book of the Acts of the Apostles as we look at part 20. The last time we engaged in our study, that is the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we looked at the last of four cruxes of the doctrine of baptisms, which is the matter of faith. We noted at that time that if indeed we believe the representations of the word of God of what baptisms are to the Christian, it then follows that as we submit to all four baptisms, that is baptism into the body of Christ, Christian or water baptism, Holy Spirit baptism, and baptism of suffering, those representations will be evident in our lives because of our faith. As with all spiritual things, faith is essential in baptisms, receiving it and experiencing its benefits without faith. Nothing can be received and enjoyed in the kingdom of God. Hence, if the benefits of baptisms are to be received and enjoyed, the believer must exercise his or her faith in God through Christ Jesus. The exercise of our faith in God and Christ is to believe God's word despite evidence to the contrary, what we called or termed resolute faith. As it relates to the doctrine of, that is the teachings on or instructions about baptisms, faith is the assurance that we exhibit and the action we engage in that speak of our resolute belief in the doctrine of baptisms. For instance, since the Lord Jesus commanded that we be baptized, we obey and are baptized. Also, since God's word says that through baptism, all those who have been born anew of the Spirit of God are of one family and of one spirit, we cannot discriminate against another believer regardless of the church he is a part of. This presupposes that we are talking of a true church. Neither can we discredit his or her baptism because it was not performed in our own local assembly, nor can we justify engaging in competition with other local assemblies. The crux of faith, as it relates, as it relates rather, to baptisms, then, is that you simply accept God's word on baptisms, believe it with conviction, and act on it as much as lies within you, or simply trust in and depend on God to bring his word to pass in your life. That's basically what faith is about. We just hang in there. We believe God. We trust in God regardless of what is happening to the contrary. Hence, having become aware that baptisms are rites of passage, you should desire to go through every one of them and so attain to spiritual maturity. When we looked at rites of passage, we said it was what leads us as we go through the rites of passage uh, of, of, of baptisms, we recognize that at the end of it all, we become mature believers. And it is when we go through the baptism of suffering that at the end of it all, we realize that indeed we have attained to maturity. Similarly, since you now know that through baptisms, God marks or identifies you as belonging to Him, and in so doing, protects and preserves you from the evil to come, your trust in God must be unflinching and resolute, even when it is the baptism of fire or suffering, as did the Lord Jesus during His passion and other saints through the ages past. Baptisms are therefore not an issue we debate, but one that we submit ourselves to because of our faith in God. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Acts chapter 1, which will be our main scripture text. Verse 6 through to verse 8. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. May the Lord bless me of his word in Jesus' name. Our scripture text seems to have picked up from verse 3, in which we are told that the Lord spoke to his disciples after his resurrection of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, among other things. So when you look at it, if you look at verse 3, it says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And one would have expected that since the Lord had been speaking to them about the things of the kingdom, why were they now asking this question? In the sixth verse, the question the disciples asked raises three fundamental questions which are critical to not just the book of the Acts of the Apostles, but also to Christianity itself. May the Lord give us insight into these matters in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the quest, three questions that arise from this one question they have asked are, what kingdom, which Israel, what timing? What kingdom, which Israel, what timing? And tonight, we are going to look at a historical perspective to the question the disciples asked in order to understand, appreciate, and come up with answers about the kingdom, the Israel, and the timing they were discussing. The question the disciples of the Lord raised reveals that they were not on the same page with the Lord. And the historical exploration of the nation of Israel from its inception up till the time when they asked the question proves a very valuable venture in appreciating their question. Now, it will also, our exploration will also prove valuable in giving us useful lessons that we can relate to as well as understand the Lord's response in verses 7 to 8. So basically what we're going to do uh, this evening is to do uh, a historical exploration of the nation of Israel from its inception to now. To be able to appreciate this question which was asked by Jesus' apostles and the ones that were remaining, the 11 that were remaining, were all Galileans. The only Jew, the only person who was from Judea there was um, Judas Iscariot and he was already out. And um, something about Galilee was that the, the, the Jewish ancestry of the Galileans was actually a subject of question. And we, and we are going to look at some of the things. For example, in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 45 to 46. I may not be reading a lot of the scriptures here. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 45 to 46, that was where, uh, what's his name now? I think it was Philip who went and called Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's answer was, And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So the Galilee was a problem. Nazareth was even a worse problem. Now by the time you get to John chapter 7, there was this argument amongst the Sanhedrin. And um, it was about arresting Jesus and not arresting him. And you remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus asked them a question. I'm, I'm skipping many of those verses. In verse 50, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Verse 52, They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of 
Galilee. It's important. The, the, the Judeans were so convinced that they were the only Jews, as it were. And they despised the Samaritans, they despised the Galileans. As we look at the history, we shall see some of these things that we're talking about. And we will come to appreciate that the, the, the disciples who were from Galilee had cause to raise that question. Because they had eagerly waited for the time when Galilee will be recognized or the Galileans will be recognized as Jews and have one kingdom. Don't worry, you will understand as we go along. In Matthew chapter 4, 13 to 16, Matthew chapter 4, 13 to 16, this was how the Bible described that territory called Galilee. I read from verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he, that is Jesus, came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun, Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. What's the next description? Galilee of the Gentiles. It wasn't considered a place of Jews. It was considered a place of Gentiles. And for them, it was a, a, a fundamental thing. In verse 16, it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has done. These people were considered to be in darkness. They were considered to be spiritually bereft. And yet it was there that Christ set up his headquarters. So when they were asking this question, they were concerned. That, are, you, are you going to put these two parts together? We are going to look at how the parts even became divided in the first place. And what is this whole matter of the kingdom being restored again? So we want to do a historical exploration. In Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 to 3, this is how the nation began. God called out Abram, Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. God called out Abram. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and make your name great, and it shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in, in chapter 15, we're not going to read all of chapter 15, but chapter 15 holds another crucial key about the history of the nation of Israel. It was where God came and told um, Abraham in a vision, said, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now there toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. However, the conversation continued. In verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, that is Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so God said to him, Bring this, bring this, bring a heifer, and so on and so forth. And they put together the implements for a covenant. And they cut a covenant. Now, I'm skipping so many things here. 
uh, some verses here which I will encourage you to go and read. Um, verse 13, it says, Then he, that is God, said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Don't go to Egypt and think that Egypt is, your, is the place. This is the land. Do you understand that? Because he is talking about Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Praise the name of the Lord. You can read the rest on your own. So this was how the nation was born. God called a man, took him to a strange land, and began to make promises. Now we know about Ishmael, and we know about Isaac, and we know about the other children that Abraham had. The, the, the children from Keturah, whom he married after Sarah had died. And then we know about, from what we've read now, how they entered into Egypt. God called for a famine. Joseph had already gone ahead of them by way of being a slave, being sold to slavery. And there was this famine. Joseph had predicted it, albeit by the Spirit of God, and preparations were made. Then he, when, when they got there, we know all that. We know all of that. So I'm not going to be talking about that in, in one, you know, little by little. The point is, they entered into Egypt as free men. And we know the Exodus. How they cried to God, how the Egyptians entreated them, uh, treated them badly, and then they cried to God, and God sent Joseph, to, uh, Moses to deliver them, and they were delivered. We know about the wilderness um, experience, the 40 years in the wilderness. Eventually, they entered into the promised land under Joseph. We know about the conquests of the nation states that were in this promised land, and how they established the new nation called Israel in that territory. We know about that. We know about the judges. How they, 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 they kept doing the wrong things and then God, they will cry. After a while, they will go into captivity and then they will cry to God and God will bring them a judge and the judge will lead them through spiritual uh, renewal and then they stay right again. The enemies are discomfited and then after some time, they enter again into uh, spiritual apostasy and the cycle goes on again. The enemy comes, holds them captive. They, they, after long times of bondage, they begin to cry to God, they begin to repent, they begin to seek revival. Again, God raised another judge. This judge brings spiritual renewal, sometimes warfare. The enemy is thrown out again. The uh, worship of God is reestablished. The people are happy again. Life continues. And then, after some time, they slip back into apostasy. This cycle continues. We know about that. And then we know about how Samuel came. When the apostasy became so great that even the priests were now becoming apostates, particularly the sons of Eli. Then from Samuel to King Saul to King David to Solomon. And then there was the time when the nation was now divided. After Solomon died, Solomon's son Rehoboam took over. And because Solomon was engaged in massive infrastructural development, it took a toll on the people. They were paying taxes. Huge taxes, not only in monetary terms, but also with their lives. People were being emptied out of the farm to engage in the building projects of Solomon. So when Rehoboam took over, the people came to uh, Rehoboam through Jeroboam, who was one of the supervisors under Solomon, who had fled because Solomon wanted to kill him um, and had returned. And he began to plead and to say, look, the burden that your father put on us was too heavy. Lighten this load and we will serve you forever. 
He turned, Rehoboam turned to his advisors, those who had advised his father. They said to, they said to him, if you will serve these people, if you actually do what they are asking, they will be your servants forever. Why don't you do it to them? Do it for them. But he refused their counsel. And then he went to his friends, those who had grown up with him, spoiled children like himself. And they said to him, go and tell them that your father's, uh, what's it now? Your, your father's uh, waist is, 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 is smaller than one of your tiny fingers. And that the whip that your father used on them is a small whip. You are using a scorpion sting upon them. He spoke to them roughly. So Jeroboam and the people said, What have we got to do with the son of David? To your tents, oh Israel. And Rehoboam at first thought it was a joke. He now sent one of his officers to go and take taxes. And they killed him. In fact, he, Jeroboam, had to flee from the place. At the end of the day, the kingdom was divided into two. So you had the northern kingdom, which were made up of all the, uh, the, the ten tribes. And then there were two tribes. Now, th- those two tribes is very tricky. Because when Judah was given its land, Simeon was put inside, right inside the land of Judah. So that's how the two of them were there. But really, the, the people that made up the two tribes were a part of Benjamin and a part of and, and then Judah as a whole. Good. So that's how the kingdom became divided. Now when the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam, out of fear, well that's what he that was his reason. That these people, if they go to Jerusalem to worship God, because that was where they all were to worship God. If they go to worship God in Jerusalem, one day they will realize that look, Israel is where, uh, Judah is where things are happening, and then they will return and kill me. He had forgotten that God is the one that put him there. So what did Jeroboam do? Jeroboam put two gold cows, one in Samaria and one in the north. He's saying to them, you don't need to go down to Jerusalem to worship, just worship around here. And then he picked people who were of despicable character and made them priests over those shrines. Thus, the northern kingdom from inception entered into apostasy. And this continued throughout their history. There was not one good king in the northern kingdom. Even the one that you would have thought would be good after some time, it went horribly bad. And that was how the northern kingdom continued until God sent the nation of Assyria. Assyria came, grabbed the people of the northern kingdom, and as it was in those days, what they normally do is when they come and conquer your territory, they will take your population and scatter them in the other lands that they have conquered and take the people from those other lands and bring them to your own place. So this is how the matter of the Samaritans came about. They brought people from other lands into that place, into the northern kingdom. Now, when the people in the other lands came and began to do their work, they noticed something that lions were eating them. So they complained and said, it seems we don't know how to worship the God of this land. You know, they were all idolaters. So, send one of the priests from this place to come and teach us how to worship the, the Lord. So they brought one of the priests of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's I don't know what he came to teach them. But anyway, the killing by lions abated. And so the Bible says that the people served their gods and served the Lord. And the syncretism was the, day, the order of the day in the northern kingdom. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom, Judah as a nation, continued. And if you read the, 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 the what do you call them now, the scriptures, you will discover a lot of times when God kept warning Judah not to, not to be like Israel. The northern kingdom was actually called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Okay. Now, so that was how we had the two kingdoms with different kings. Now, the southern kingdom always had a son of David on the throne. Somebody from David's lineage was always on the throne in the southern kingdom. Except one time when Athaliah, a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, having been married to one of the sons of Jehoshaphat, killed all her children, save one, and gradually save one, who was a, a baby, was rescued. And she became the ruler 
for six years. When that boy grew and became six years old, his uncle, who was the high priest at the time, arranged a coup and they killed Athaliah and the son of David again sat on the throne. Now this continued and a time came when Judah itself went into apostasy. They kept having hiccups up and down. Up and down, up and down. Sometimes it will be, uh, what do you call it now? A good king will come, do some good deeds, then his son will come, and the son will be wicked. And this continued. At a point in time, Assyria actually came against them and took Manasseh away. You know the story of how Manasseh begged God in captivity and God returned him. Until finally, Nebuchadnezzar came and cutted Judah away. In fact, I think the captivity of Judah was in two, in two tranches. The first tranche was when Daniel... And his friends were taken away. Uh, Ezekiel was also taken away. And then the second tranche, every other person was taken away except for the smaller people. At that point, then Jeremiah was also left behind. Thus, Israel was effectively taken into captivity. The two separate nations went into two different uh, uh, captivities. But while in captivity, prophecies were taking place. We're going to read one of the prophecies. It's important to understand that these prophecies were at the back of the minds of these people when they were speaking, are you going to restore the kingdom? Note, we are discussing what now? That question, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's what we are discussing. Now, we are, we are saying, what could have given rise to this question? When we know that if the Lord was discussing the, 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 the matters pertaining to the kingdom, he would have been discussing spiritual things. But they were looking more at a physical thing. Why was this the case? So we are looking at their experience, which is a historical perspective to why they would have behaved that way. Ezekiel 37, from 15 to 28. Ezekiel 37, 15 to 38. Again the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Now, each time you read Ephraim, he's speaking about the northern kingdom. When you read Jerusalem or Judah, he's speaking about the southern kingdom. So he told Ezekiel, make two, get two sticks. Write on one stick. This stick is for Judah and all of the Jews for Judah. This stick is for Ephraim or the northern kingdom. And all the tribes of the northern kingdom. Now, in verse 17 it says, Then join them to one another for yourself unto one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by this? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribe of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. So you see, they had this particular prophecy in mind. That God says that the nation will be joined again to one nation. Jeremiah 23, another prophecy which Jeremiah had given from verse 1 to 8. Woe to the shepherds who dwell and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds, 
who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them and will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So these were prophecies that were, were, were in the minds of the disciples when they were asking him this question. Will you at this time bring these two nations together? Praise the name of the Lord. Okay, now I need to stress again a portion of their history. Now when they, were, when they returned, Especially Judah. When Judah returned, they returned to Jerusalem. One of the things they did, and you need to read the book of Ezra to understand this. One of the things they did was to take a genealogy of each person. You had to state your lineage. You must be able to state it. This, I'm, the, I'm, I'm, I'm of the tribe of this. This was my father. That was his father. This was his father. And trace it until they can say, yes, you are a Jew. So they did all of those genealogies. Now, the people who they couldn't find... I think they called them Nephites or something. There were some people that they couldn't find, they couldn't trace their genealogies, or they couldn't believe that they were Jews, but they were Jews. Those people, they put in the peripheries of Jerusalem. In fact, some of them were pushed out of Jerusalem. So some of them migrated to what is now, what we now call Galilee. Do you understand? Some of them were also in the peripheries. Some of them were in Samaria, because they were not allowed into that place, because they, had, they were of doubtful genealogies. And that's why you had the, 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 the kind of changes you had. So those who dwelt in the land of Galilee had taken on a new speech. You remember when Peter spoke? They said to Peter that your speech betrays you. Now even though these were Jews, but because of this discrimination that they did, they, they had to take on fresh identities at the return. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, so when they returned, Galilee of the Gentiles was there. Samaria was there. Now they returned to where? Judah. Which is, which is now called, which, which was then called Judea, right? And there was this scattering of people moving elsewhere. The Arabs and the Babylonians and some of the other tribes had actually inhabited Samaria. The, the area known as Samaria. Not just the, the town of Samaria, but all the neighboring areas. You remember, you recall in the book of Nehemiah, the statement about Sambalat and Tobias. You remember? Those were the Arabs and the other strangers who had come to occupy that place. Right? Good. So, when they were asking that question, the Galileans were asking that question, they were, they were interested in this nation coming back. You, re, you recall in, in John chapter 4, the Bible tells us about how Jesus was returning from Jerusalem to Galilee and that he must needs pass through Samaria. The, the geography of the place was such that in the north, you had Galilee. In the center, you had um, Samaria. And in the south, you had Judea. If we use Nigeria, for example, we have the south, we have what we call the middle belt, and we have the north. 
Now, in the middle belt, in their middle belt, you actually had strangers who had filled the whole land. So when there wasn't enough land in Judea, the south, what did they do? They crossed the middle belt and went into Gentile territory. So each time they came for the feasts in Jerusalem, they were considered outsiders, like they would consider the Jews who were in Greek lands who had come in. Do you understand that? It's important to understand this, because if we can get the history, we'll understand why they asked the question. Okay, now, when they had returned, and they were in, uh, what's it called now? Judea. The first thing they did, which is appropriate, was to build their houses, right? They built their houses, but after they built their houses, they just began to enjoy themselves. And then God raised amongst them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And in Haggai chapter 1, this was what Haggai was speaking to them about. From verse 3 to 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you, to, to, for, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore thus says the Lord, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its, its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land, and the, mountains, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men, and livestock, and on all the labor, on, on all the labor of your hands. So when Haggai made this prophecy, Zechariah, uh, what's his name, Zerubbabel, who was the, the leader of that, uh, those returnees, now gathered the people together with uh, Joshua, the high priest, and they began to build. Now, you will need to read, like I said, the book of Ezra to understand a lot of these things. In the course of their building, the Samaritans came and said, Ah, we used to worship this God when you people were not here. So we want to build this temple with you. That was where the problem of Nehemiah came about with Sambalat and Tobias. Because these are the people who were withholding the, the building from continuing. Now when they said, no, you cannot, you are not going to build with us. We are Jews. We serve our God alone and we build the house ourselves. These people started writing letters to the leaders. But one of the reasons why God raised Haggai to caution them and, Ze and Zechariah to caution them was because they came in, don't forget, uh, what's his name? Cyrus, the, one of the Persian kings, the, was the one who released them and gave them things and said, go and build the house of God and pray for me that God will bless me as well. They got there and what were they doing? They were building their own houses, doing their own business and they, are, they forgot about the house of God. So God was telling Haggai, tell them to start building this house. Now by the time they started, the, the, by the time they started and op, uh, opposition came, Cyrus was no longer king. Cyrus was dead. A new king had come in who didn't understand what was happening. So that king gave order and said, tell them to stop instantly. Because they said, these are the people, they, they were troublesome people. That's why they were taken away from here by, by Nebuchadnezzar. And they have come back to their rebellion again. And they started building this temple that Nebuchadnezzar brought down. So God understood the timing. They didn't understand the timing. And they were busy building their houses. When they now wanted to build the temple, 
opposition came, a new king had come in, they, could, they, they, they didn't have the mouth. But eventually, when Haggai now raised them, came up and said to them, go ahead and build. Even though there was opposition, he said, go ahead and build. He gave a word of prophecy. Now, let's just read Ezra chapter 5. I, I want us to be on the same page as we are reading these things. That's why I'm, I'm looking at some scriptures. But go home, read chapter 3 of Ezra. If I read Ezra from chapter 1, read the whole book. It's short. Ezra chapter 5, from verse 1 to 5. Read the rest of chapter 5. I'm just going to read verse 1 to 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, son of Ido, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Lord, in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. How were they helping them? They kept speaking the word of God, kept encouraging them with the word of God, not with any other thing. Verse 3. At the same time, Tatenai, the governor of the region, beyond the river, and Sethabosnai, and their companions, came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. Read the rest. By the time this, this second attempt to rebuild began, the other king who stopped it had changed. A new king had come in. And the new king now wrote and said, make sure you don't stop the work. In fact, all the taxes you are collecting, send it to that work. Remember, in chapter 2, God said, the silver is mine. The chapter 2 of Haggai said, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. That I'm going to cause the desire of nations to come into this temple. That's, that's, the, that's the fulfillment of that prophecy. When this, this, this king wrote and said, move all the taxes they are collecting on that side. Don't bring it to me in Persia. Move it to that house. Let them build that house. Because we have seen from the Chronicles that Cyrus had told them to build house. Praise the Lord. So this was the case. The temple had been built. Now, there are a lot of things that, you know, we don't have the time to, be, to begin to look at them one by one. But if you read the book of Daniel, a time came when, the, when an angel came to tell Daniel about certain things. You remember he told Daniel about the prince of Persia. Do you remember that, that, that aspect? Good. And he told Daniel that there were three more kings to come in the kingdom of Persia. Then he also mentioned about the prince of Grecia. At the time, Greece was non-existent as a nation. In fact, what, was, what you have been, would have been likened to be like a nation was a town. Uh, Macedonia was just a nation state. And it was a state of barbarians. There were barbarians there. So it, was, it didn't make any sense to Daniel. But the angel kept telling him, don't worry. There is going to be the, the, the prince of Persia. There is going to be uh, Greece. And then he mentioned what will happen in the, in the Greek uh, period. Now, even though they had returned from captivity onto their land, they were still under the domination of other kingdoms. At first, they were under whose domination now? Persia. Then, Greece. In fact, if, if, you, if you remember Daniel's, the vision that Daniel saw, Greece was depicted as the, I think, the leopard with, with wings who flew. In fact, that was how Alexander the Great did. He just rose up from one part of, of Greece, and before they knew what was happening, he was barely, I think it was 18 or 21 years old or so, when he overran the entire world the known world at the time. He just went straight to Persia, conquered Persia, and once you conquered the headquarters, every part of that kingdom was yours. It was as he proceeded to India. He was the one who went farthest the most. He proceeded towards India. It was in India that he was stopped because the Indians had elephants. They, they had horses 
and the, the Indians had elephants. And you know the height of an elephant. By the time they, they, were, they were higher, they were bigger, they were stronger than the Grecians. So they pushed them back. After the defeat of um, Alexander the Great, I think whether he was poisoned or something, he died. Now when Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided into four amongst his four generals. One went west, back home to Greece, Macedonia and co. One remained in Persia. So you had the west and you had the east. Then two, one went north and one went south. South was Egypt. In the course of all of that, Greek had become the language and the culture of the known world. But the Jews, wanting to preserve their identity, knowing what had happened, that they went into captivity because of apostasy, they were strong at retaining their identity. They wanted to retain it. In the process, they gave birth to an uprising known as the, the I think it was the, uh, forgotten the name of the revolt, but it came from a house called the House of the Maccabees or something. And these priests, these were priests who fought against um, this domination. So for a short while, a very short while, they were actually an independent people. No nation dominated them until Rome came up. And Rome began to conquer everything inside. And then the Romans came and dominated the Jews. So as at the time they were speaking, who was in charge there now? Rome. Do you understand? They had at the back of their minds that they are not supposed to be under the domination of any nation or any empire or any kingdom. But here they were under the domination of Rome. And they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ based on all that he had done and rising from, from the dead as the one who was going to champion the cause of bringing the two nations that were estranged together as one and throwing out the Romans and all the people who had, dom who had dominated them. That brings us to defining the meaning of the word kingdom. There are three, three terms that refer to the word kingdom. The first term is rule, to rule someone, to administer, or an administration, or governance. Rule, to rule, to administer, to govern. The second meaning is to reign, to have authority over a people. Or a territory. To set up a government. The third meaning is the realm or the area or sphere or territory or the people who are being, who are being governed. So you have rule, you have um, reign, and you have realm. Or administration, authority, and area that, they are, that, the, that the authority is, 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 is over. Or you have the, the, you have the governance, the government and the governed. So that's what a kingdom is. Now, when you look at the Roman domination which they were fighting against, we want to look at some scriptures now to let you understand what was happening. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, or the government of Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philippi, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Traconitis and Lysanias, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Now, a tetrarch is someone who governs over a quarter of an entire kingdom. So, the land, what we, what we will call the Middle East today, was then divided into four by the Romans. Don't forget the Romans were fantastic administrators. They were the ones who actually who brought in roads. They brought in administration. They brought in the concept of divide and rule. Because they just wanted the places where they were in. Uh, not to, they didn't want any revolt. They wanted the place to be calm. 
So, and they didn't want to come and destroy it. Their role was not to destroy a place. Their role was to get the best of that place. Like what, what you have in colonization. When they came, they didn't want to destroy the place. They just want to pick out the resources. We still have it today. They just want to get resources out of the place. So that's what the Romans brought in. Now, for the Roman administration to be able to function effectively, therefore, you had Caesar and the Roman Senate. As a matter of fact, what we are still doing today is the Roman is is is, is, a, is from the playbook of the Roman Empire. You had the you had the, the emperor and you had the Senate. Then under them you now have the territories that they governed. Now, where there was a territory that was headstrong, they didn't put somebody who was from that place there. They sent a Roman as governor of the place. That's why you have Pontius Pilate as go- Judea was considered a, a, a resting place. It was a place of insurrection. So they sent a governor. And once they send a governor, the governor goes with armies. He goes with an army, goes with armed men, goes with generals, goes with officers and so on and so forth to keep the peace in the place. They didn't want any noise that would disturb them in Rome. So Pontius, uh, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Then Herod's children, in fact, the fourth one was actually, I think it was called Achilles or something. He was supposed to be the, the, the one in, in uh, Judea. But I don't think he was able to handle it. So they had to send a governor there. The other sons were the ones who were there. Now it says Herod... Um, one of the sons of Herod was a tetrarch of Galilee, right? And I think his, um, his capital was where? Is it Tiberias by the sea? Yes. And then his brother was Philip, the one of Ituria. It was that Herod who went to marry the wife of his brother Philip that John the Baptist pointed to him and said, you are a sinner. You shouldn't be marrying the wife of your brother. That was that, that, was that Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. He was the son of Herod the Great. His father was the one who actually ruled over that territory. But, and the father was an, an, an astute man. He, he had his ways of making people to be at peace. The, Her, the Herodians, or rather the Herods, not the Herodians, the Herods were not Jews. They were actually Edomites. They were from Esau's tribe. But this Herod the Great, he had a way of maintaining the peace. But when he died and he had four sons, none of them could maintain the peace. So that was why Pontius Pilate came to Judea and the others were tetracks in their place. Now in verse 2, he says, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Our focus is on Annas and Caiaphas. At no time were there supposed to be more than one high priest. But at this point in time, what, what, what did they have? They had two. Even if one was going to die, he must die first before the other one can take over. But here, they had two. And they ruled Paripasu. They, they, they were just governing at the same time. The whole place was in confusion. Now, so when these people were referring to being under domination, who were they referring to now? They were referring to the Caesar in Rome. They were referring to the Roman Senate. They were referring to the governor. They were referring to the tetrachs. They were referring to the priesthood. Then there was another group. That group was the group of the Pharisees. Um... You, you can read Matthew 14, verse 1 on your own. Matthew 14, verse 1 just talks about um, the other tetrarch, the, the Herod guy who, who was there. But let's go, we'll, we'll go over to Matthew in a moment. There was another group in all of these things. Amongst the Jews, they were under, domin- under domination by some of their own people. You had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the elites. They were religious, but not religious according to the word of God, but religious in their own way. But they were wealthy people. Do you understand? Among the Sadducees were the high priests. That's why they could have two high priests. And they formed the Sanhedrin. They, they formed the larger part of the Sanhedrin. However, there was another group that belonged to the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were not wealthy people. But they had become, they had acquired tremendous power. The scribes were another group. Who were the scribes? The scribes were the people who interpreted the law of Moses. 
They told you what the word of God meant, what it is saying. These were the scribes or the rabbis. Do you understand that? They were rabbis. However, the rabbis merely taught the word of God. The Pharisees implemented the word of God. Do you understand that now? They, when, when the scribes said, this is what this means. Let's say, for example, they say, a woman must cover her face. Let's look at, let's consider the hijab. The woman must, have, must wear a hijab. This is what God is saying here. The Pharisees were the ones that went about with stick to make sure that the women covered their face. So, the scribes were the interpreters. The Pharisees were the implementers. And sometimes to implement the word of God, they also made up their own laws. So they would, they would tell, okay, you are not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. So if you are doing anything on the Sabbath, they are the ones who will say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. So you, know, you now understand why they were always attacking Jesus. They were the ones implementing the law. So every time the Lord made a statement or, or said something, they were there to say, you are not supposed to be doing this. They had become a very powerful group in the place. The people were afraid of them. The people were afraid of the scribes. The people were afraid of the high priests. They were afraid of the Sadducees. Now there was another group. In fact, two other groups. One of them were the Herodians. The Herodians were not religious in the slightest. They were the aristocrats. You know, you know who an aristocrat is? The bourgeois. These were the wealthy men. They were men of power. They were the ones who, if the governor was going to have a party, they must be on the governor's list. They were the ones that were there. Now, a number of times, they did not agree, they did not see eye to eye with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees could not do much to them because they were powerful people. However, the Pharisees continued to dominate the poor people of the land and the scribes. So, with that background, let's go to Matthew chapter 23. I will just read a few verses there. Matthew 23 from verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. He distinctly mentions those two because their role was critical. Even though they were doing something wrong, but their role was critical. What was it? They were keeping the law. So he said they were sitting in the seat of Moses. So what did he say to them? Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not so this was one group. And we know if you read later, you will see how the Lord began to rain woes upon them. And how we call them hypocrites. They were interpreting the law, but they were not doing it. They were implementing the law, but they were not observing it themselves. But he told them, don't think that because they are doing, they are, they are, they are saying and not doing, you shouldn't do. You do. Leave them to say and not do. But make sure that you are doing. Now, we'll go to chapter 22. And you will see the, the marriage of convenience that was taking place. In Israel. All because of Jesus. From verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how... I'm reading Matthew 22 from verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, that is Jesus, in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. You remember I told you that the Herodians were the aristocrats. They, they actually didn't agree with the Pharisees. If they agreed with anybody at all, it was the Sadducees they agreed with. But because of Jesus Christ, what had happened? They had become strange bedfellows. 23 to 33. The same day, the Sadducees, these were religious people, but in a negative sense. They were actually, what will we call them now? They were not religious in the God kind of way. The same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, we know that story. And look at what he said to them in verse 29. You know, when they use that illustration of if a man dies uh, having a wife, then, you know, his brother, according to the Lord, brother will marry her. And the, the brother marries her. The first, the first brother died without a child. The second brother died without a child. The third one married her again without a child. The fourth one, and so on and so forth. 
But this is what the and then that said. Therefore, in the resurrection, note that they don't believe in resurrection. So what were they coming to do? They wanted to rubbish what Jesus Christ was saying. And what did the Lord Jesus say to them in verse 29? Let's read 28 first. He said, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus said to them, you are mistaken or you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. So even though they were religious, they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the power of God. They didn't understand anything other than to be high priest and to be priest. That was all they were. So these were the, this was the hierarchy of the people who governed, um, what's it called now? The, the, who governed Israel. There was also a group I, I forgot to mention. The tax collectors. They were Jews, but they worked for the Roman government. They were there to collect taxes. So what did they do? They build more, they, because nobody, there was no, no tax law. It is whoever, is whatever they look at you and say, this man looks like a rich man. He's worth something. So they just tell you, pay this. And you go and pay. A lot of that money found their way into their own pockets. So these were the people who became the Herodians. Because when you have acquired a lot of money, you become an aristocrat. Pretty much like in Nigeria today. After you have stolen a, 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 some money, you become an aristocrat. No, look at your background, no education, no nothing. You are just an aristocrat. Why? Because you have money. So that was the situation in the case. The, people, the disciples were, now, were therefore asking the Lord, Will you at this deliver us? From this domination. Will you bring the two kingdoms together so that we Galileans will be seen as true Jews and not outsiders? Will you bring all the Jews together at this time and form the kingdom under David? You being the son of David. Imagine somebody who has died and has resurrected. What battle do you think he will not fight? So they were expecting him to become the, their champion, one who would raise an army and defeat the Roman establishment. Right from Rome up till the scribes and the Pharisees. So, you understand why they asked that question now. But the Lord's answer, his response to that question, suggested that he was talking about something different. He was saying that it's not the time for you to, it's not for you to, to you know, to determine those things. Those, power, those times are put in the power of God. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses of me in, Jude, in Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria, and the ends of the world. Do you see where he placed Galilee? Of the Gentiles, to the ends of the world. What we are trying to do here is to see why the question which we have answered now. Now, why the answer? Again, to appreciate, we are not dealing with the answer fully yet, but to appreciate that answer, let's go back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, from verse 1 to 11. Next week, by the grace of God, we are going to look at this in, in some detail. So I'm just going to read it. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your, your eyes will be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sowed fig fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God asked, called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Who 
told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? It's not as if God was ignorant. It's not as if God did not know. But something t- terribly had taken place in the garden. Adam and Eve, who had been living a glorious life, had suddenly fallen to a life of shame where they were hiding. They had come, they, w- they used to be under the authority, the rule, the reign of God. But when they sinned, they had come under the rule and reign of who? Satan. This is the state of every man. So while the disciples were speaking about who will deliver them from the domination of Rome and its agents and agencies, there is something more at stake, which is what the Lord is trying to address. Do you understand that now? What is at stake is what happened in the Garden of Eden. They were concerned about their present circumstances based on their historical understanding. But their history did not go beyond where? Abraham. But the Lord's history is going where? To the Garden of Eden. So, we have a situation in our churches where we ask a similar question as these disciples were asking. Pastor, when am I going to buy my car? Pastor, when am I going to get married? Pastor, I need a child. Do you understand what we're saying now? I need a child, I need this. And we are discussing peripherals. Whereas the Lord is taking us where? To the root of the matter. We are discussing how we are going to buy clothes and wear clothes. We are discussing how we are going to become something in this world. Lord, will you at this time give me my house? I am tired of paying landlord rent. These are the things we see in our churches today. But the Lord is taking us to where? What happened in the garden? Why did it happen? Why should it have happened? We are under a domination. And we are thinking of cars. We are thinking of houses. We are thinking of ourselves. We are thinking of becoming great. We are thinking of politics. Like when we pray in Nigeria. What are we praying about? Oh, the children of the born woman shall not roll, reign over the children of the, of, of the, what do you call them now? Hmm? Hmm? Well, oh, oh, okay, over the children of the free. Who are the free? I don't know. Who are, who are, who are the children of the born women? I don't know. But they, 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 they keep saying it. We hear it everywhere. Oh, no, 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 no. Nigeria is going to be Islamized. Lord, when will you deliver Nigeria from Islamization? Is that what the Lord is discussing? No. And we say all manner of things. We gather together in our churches to pray against things that God is not interested in. Romans chapter 7. You'll be shocked at what God is interested in. From verse 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Who sold us under sin? Who? Adam. Do you understand? When Adam sinned, what happened to all of human race? were sold to sin. That singular act of Adam, there was a change in the kingdom. There was a change in the ruler. There was a change in the, in the one who reigned over man. Before God reigned over man. Now, who was reigning over man? Satan. We are going to look at this in some details next week when we discuss, when we discuss the spiritual perspective to the question. Now we are just discussing the historical perspective. But I need to bring this in because of the way the church is carrying on today. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, or what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, that does not extricate you from responsibility. Because you have God sin. You allowed sin to dominate you. Right? Now, verse uh, 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. I want to stop this thing, but I can't stop it. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. 
Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. In fact, in, in one of the portions of the scripture here, it says that sin deceived me using the law. It tricked me and got me to sin, and then brought me under subjection to it. What is he saying there? Because of the, because of the fall of man, all that we are interested in is how to sin. We have a sin-loving nature inside. Do you understand? Now, and all we are interested in is how to sin. So when we read, thou shalt not commit adultery, the only thing that is ringing in the head of man is what? Adultery. Adultery. And every time, sin is dragging him into it. What was the problem in the garden? God gave them a law. Do not eat of this tree. Is that not so? What did the serpent do? The serpent came and brought out that, that matter, which ordinarily should not have been an issue. But he brought it out. And suddenly, Eve's focus was where now? The tree. The tree. The tree. And she began to look for the reasons why she should eat of the tree. Look for reasons to dispute the word of God. Just like our sister looked for the reason to dispute the matter of head covering. And come up with their own understanding of what head covering is. Just like we find people who dispute the matter of tithing. And look for a way to discuss something else other than tithing. Anything but the law of God. Because of the nature of sin. And so, we have a situation in verse 24. Where it is written, O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's the same, it's similar to the question that they asked Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The question we should be asking is, who will deliver us from this body of that lost to sin? But that's not the question we're asking. What are we asking? When will I build my house? When will I buy my car? When am I going to get that job in that, in that organization? That's what we come to ask God. And so a lot of times we leave our, our meetings frustrated because it appears God is not answering us. In verse 25 it says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now there's still a problem there because sin is still an issue. But we're not discussing that today. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 8 and read from 19. Because not only did this thing that happened in the Garden of Eden affect us up till this date, and even affected them, but it affected all of creation. In Romans 8 from 19, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is sin is not hope. For why does one still hope? For what he sees. But if we hope for, for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with what? Perseverance. They were waiting for a physical kingdom. The Lord was speaking about a spiritual kingdom. We are waiting for some of these worldly things. The Lord is speaking of spiritual things. Whilst our preachers are telling us to pursue the building of houses, the Lord is telling us that he has gone away to build houses for us. And that when he has finished, what will he do? He will come 
So you see that in our prayers, we are asking questions based on our own historical antecedents and our perspective, rather than the Lord's perspective. And so, the same way the disciples were asking questions that would have, that would have satisfied themselves, is the same way we ask questions that satisfy ourselves. Now, when the Lord was giving his answer, he gave an answer that would, that would suggest to them that what your goal is, is not my goal. But if you pursue my goal, eventually, your own goal will be, will be fulfilled. Because eventually, that domination they are talking about, at the end of the age, will eventually take place. When he will come and establish his kingdom and put his rule of, of peace, Israel will become one nation, the other nations will be there and God will have his own people all over the place. He will be indeed be their God and they will indeed be his people. But they wanted the thing now, like many of us want it now. And yet what God was speaking about was something spiritual. So let's stop here and conclude. When we look at the history of the Jewish people, as well as the prophecies that have followed them as a people, all through scriptures, it is clear why the disciples would have asked the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In understanding this question, the meaning of the word kingdom must be taken into account. The word kingdom could mean rule, administration, governance, reign, authority over or government, realm, area, sphere, or territory, or the governed. Now, in, um, I'm sure many of, you, many of you are too young to even understand. What, who, how many of you heard of the Falkland Wars? Anybody here heard of the Falkland War? It was fought in the 1980s, so if you were not born, you were born in the 80s. Don't worry, you wouldn't have heard of it. Good. Falkland Islands is next to Argentina in South America. See where Britain is. See where Argentina is. Who, who should lay claim to Falkland Islands? Argentina. But the British said, no, 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 no. Falkland Islands belong to us. Our explorers went there and discovered it. Why? There was oil in that island. So they fought a bitter war. Britain won. So even though Britain is just six hours away from us by air, it has stressed its hand of government to take Falkland, crossing over many seas and over many nations, to take an island called Falklands as its own. Meanwhile, Argentina that is next door cannot rule over Falkland. So, when we talk of the realm of the British Empire, Falklands Island is part of it. Even though France next door is not part of the British Empire. But Falklands Island that is well thousands of miles or kilometers away across oceans is considered British territory. Do you understand it now? That's what a realm is. So it is possible to be in a particular location and not belong to that kingdom. That's what that word kingdom stands for. That's why the realm is there. Thus, in a kingdom, there is a person or group of pers or people, that is the rulers, who reign or dominate or exercise dominion over people in a realm which may not necessarily be geographically contiguous. That's what we described. Because um, Falkland Island is not geographically contiguous to Great Britain. Hence, Jesus' disciples were expressing a deep desire to be free from the domination of those whose rule and reign over them was oppressive, in sharp contrast to the liberty they enjoyed under the Lord Jesus Christ. The rulers or oppressors the disciples were referring to included the Roman emperor, and the Roman Senate, the Roman machine of oppression and domination, which included the governors, Roman officers, and soldiers, and even the tax collectors who were Jews. Then you had the Tetrarchs, who ruled over the landmass that was the territory of Israel in the time of Solomon, who were really the children of Herod the Great, who reigned over Israel at the time of the birth of Jesus. And then you had the Sanhedrin, who comprised the religious and political elite of the Jews, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. We've told the Herodians were not religious, they were, and they were not part of the Sanhedrin, but they were aristocratic. 
as well as the powerful religious laymen of their day, the Pharisees and the scribes and interpreters of the law. What the Lord's disciples express in their question raises for Christians today an issue which is fundamental to Christianity, in which we, as well as all of creation, are literally asking, when will the oppression and domination of our slave masters end? and we become free from the bondage they have kept us under. But in asking this question, like we said earlier, what, where is our focus on? The peripherals, the physical. My landlord is oppressing me. Pastor, I need a new house. My people are just disturbing me. I need to get married. Oh, my, 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 my husband's family are disturbing me. I need children. So we, we focus on the peripherals, whereas the Lord is focusing on something else. And by the time we, by the time we get into some depth in this study, we will see how these things we are focusing on is actually not helping our cause. Such was the cry of the children of Israel in Egypt. And God heard them and sent Moses as their deliverer. What were the children of, 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 of um, Israel expecting? They were actually expecting a military invasion. But was that how they were delivered? No. By the word of God, that's how they were delivered. The oppressors of the children of Israel in Moses' time included not just the Egyptian government and their taskmasters, but sadly their own brothers who were being used by the Egyptians to oppress and subject them to all manner of oppressiveness. They had taskmasters. Now when God was going to deliver them, if Moses had gone and said, those who want to come out, come out, the taskmasters would have remained. And in remaining, they would have dragged some of them. In fact, they would have... So what did God do? God allowed Pharaoh to even hate the taskmasters to the point that uh, Egyptian soldiers were flogging the taskmasters. And they said, okay, I think it's time for all of us to go. So it made it uncomfortable for them to achieve his purpose. In our own case today, our prayers from freedom, from freedom must include not just the peripherals, like political governance and religious persecution, which is what we are, we are discussing today. But, more importantly, freedom from the real oppression and domination by the many church leaders whose teachings make the people like sheep without a shepherd. And the flesh, which continues to lead many into bondage and captivity to drugs, sexual sins, worldliness, and so on and so forth. That must be our focus. Today, all we need to do is turn on to social media and you begin to hear stories of what is happening in Nigeria. Oh, I've, I've seen some people are brandishing, oh, pray for the vice president, oh, pray for this. Oh, what is all that noise for? To what purpose? Somebody, I, I read an article uh, today of uh, Babangida's daughter's wedding in Mina. How everybody converged of the different parties, of the different tribes. Of the different religions. Not one fought. The, they were all struggling to embrace themselves and fight. And these are the people putting you in subjection. But you will carry gun and get angry. He's an evil man. He's a house man. He's, but the, those same people were gathered in Mina, shaking their hands, da dancing, drinking, and enjoying themselves. And God is saying to us, enough of that nonsense. It's time to understand my kingdom. So which kingdom? Or what kingdom are we talking about? Which Israel are they even talking about? And what is the timing they are discussing? I think we mentioned last week or so, how Gehazi went to collect something from Naaman. And Elisha asked him, is this the time to be doing that? How, we also discussed today, how the children of Israel were building their panel houses and enjoying their houses while the temple was left. And what did God say? Is this the time to be living in that your panel house? When the temple is not built. It's the same issue that is being raised today. Is this the time for you to be discussing car or no car? Job or no job? Marriage or no marriage? Children or no children? Is this the time? There are more fundamental issues. And I'm praying that as we take the next step, which is next week, to discuss 
to begin to discuss the spiritual perspective that the Almighty God will open your understanding, quicken within you to understand what the issue is that is at stake. That the domination that we are talking about is far deeper than the ones we see with our eyes. What happened in the Garden of Eden, which we are going to consider to some detail, is so critical to the matter of the kingdom. There is, there is, there is a, a ruler whose kingdom was acquired through trickery. And that is how he continues to exercise that domination and that dominion over people. The only way to get out of that, that ruler's sphere or realm is to be on the side of God. We're going to be discussing some of that. If you are not on the side of God, you are under the dominion of that sphere. By the grace of God, we will cease to be under that dominion because the two kingdoms are diametrically opposed. Let's bow our heads. As we pray, many of us look at our history and on the base of our history, we start asking questions. And yet... There are more serious issues at stake than the questions we are asking based on our history. Some preachers have told us that if something is wrong in your family, you will see it over time. They are discussing the peripheral thing. They are, they are not discussing the root of the matter. Some even get to the point of always talking about demonic oppression, which is true. But, not, but they do not discuss our own cooperation with the demons. Because I have discovered that nobody can have dominion over you without your cooperation. So these are issues that we must be discussing, which we don't discuss in the church. People go to church Sunday in, Sunday out, and yet their lives are still in bondage. People go to church on Sunday in the morning, and by evening they have committed suicide of that same Sunday. What was it that drove them to commit suicide? What voice did they hear? People are having dreams and misinterpreting the dreams. Some of the dreams have nothing to do with God, but they always interpret it to be God saying something. Our focus has taken our gaze away from God and His Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But we are looking unto things. We are looking unto Nigeria. We are looking unto the political parties. We are looking unto monies coming out of politics. When we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Many of us don't know that an unconfessed sin is an unforgiven sin. And once there's an unforgiven sin in your life, Satan has a strong hold over your life. And instead of releasing your hand, releasing, getting that thing out of, out of the way, no, we are more interested in things like house and car. Sinners live in houses. In fact, sinners live in palaces. They drive jeeps. It's not just for Christians. The richest man, in, in, in the richest black man, he's not a Christian. Doesn't even know anything about Jesus Christ other than he, he, a name that he knows. That's all. And we are chasing after something. Whereas God needs our cooperation. The thing you are looking for, God wants to give you, but he has a procedure for doing it. That is why he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that people are running after shall be added to you. And I add, as is necessary. You don't have it just because you must have it. Talk to the Lord. Thank God we are going to start our fast on Monday, that's tomorrow, for one week, breaking at six. I want you to take it as a prayer point in the course of the, in course, in the, course of the fast. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of the book of your law. For I'm a stranger in this earth. I need your commandment to survive the earth. I want you to talk to the Lord about the matters of the kingdom. His kingdom. Not the kingdoms of this world. Not the kingdom of Satan. But the kingdom of God. I'd like you to talk to the Lord and say, Lord... Why, why, sometimes I wonder, why is it that we focus so much on our history? If indeed we are born again, the salvation that we have removed us from that historical attachment to a new history, a new kingdom, a kingdom bathed by Christ. Why do we draw ancestry that have no bearing with Christ and believe it and hold on to it? Whereas we should be holding on to Jesus. It is only at the point of death that we run to Jesus. Otherwise, we still consider the ancestry. Oh, in our family, this is how we do it. In our family. Then when death comes, we start running to God. 
Many of us are yet to be able to detach from the cultures of this world and hold on to the culture of Christ. Let's talk to the Lord who help us to acquire the right perspective to the things of the kingdom. The right perspective to the things of God. Even if you don't live in a house that you own on this earth, it is crucial that all your activity here must give you house ownership in eternity. For the Lord said, I am going to prepare a place. Say, my father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to pray a place for you. When it is done, I'll come and take you. That should be your focus. If you get a house here, fine. Father, help us. Help us to be able to look at our history in the flesh and recognize the superiority of our spiritual history, which is in Christ. That in Christ, our natural history is done away with completely. And we enter into a new territory, a new kingdom, whose history is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Almighty and everlasting God, that you help us in the course of the week to talk to you, to, to have interaction with you concerning these matters, so that when we meet again next week Sunday, to the glory of your name, we are able to thoroughly dissect the spiritual perspective and see what is really at the root of our challenges in life. Thank you, everlasting Father. Blessed be your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen.